Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Unfortunately, Bishop Barron is not with us in studio. He's actually flying from Los Angeles all the way across the country to Washington, D.C. for a series of meetings for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. But we didn't want to leave you hanging, and so that's why we're bringing you this talk today from Bishop Barron on John Henry Newman. It's actually the third and final talk in a series of three talks he delivered in 2010 at the Pontifical North American College in Rome. He was over there speaking to seminarians. Each of the three talks focused on one of John Henry Newman's great books. The first talk was on the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which was John Henry Newman's intellectual conversion memoir. And we shared that talk here on the podcast. You'll find it in episodes 154 and 155 in case you missed it. The second talk focused on Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine, which we also shared here in episodes 170 and 178. Today, though, we're going to pick up with the third and final talk. It covers Newman's text, The Grammar of Ascent. The Grammar of Ascent. Now, it's especially timely that we're hearing this talk today because in just a couple weeks, Pope Francis is going to canonize John Henry Newman, recognizing him as a saint. The canonization will take place on October the 13th. It'll be in Rome, and Bishop Barron will be there in person. We're planning to share all sorts of behind-the-scenes photos and videos, so be sure you're following Bishop Barron on social media to receive all that. But then, uh, even more exciting, a few days later, Bishop Barron will be traveling from Rome to England. He'll be in Oxford, where he's been invited to deliver a major lecture on John Henry Newman in the very church where John Henry Newman served in Oxford in his time as an Anglican chaplain. The church is the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin. It's right in the heart of Oxford. And Bishop Barron will be speaking from the same pulpit that John Henry Newman preached from. And for our C.S. Lewis fans, it was also the pulpit where Lewis delivered his great sermon titled The Weight of Glory. So a lot of history behind that pulpit. We're planning to live stream Bishop Barron's talk. It'll be on the topic John Henry Henry Newman and the New Evangelization, and here's why it's important, that talk focuses primarily on the grammar of ascent, the very book we're focusing on on the podcast over the next couple weeks. Um, the grammar of ascent is all about religious epistemology. It's just a fancy way of saying how and why we believe what we do about God. So in the book, you'll find topics around belief evidence, faith, reason, how we how we come to assent or belief in God. We're going to cover the first half of Bishop Barron's talk in this week's episode, and then we'll do the second half of the talk in next week's episode, and all that will be the perfect segue to the big celebration in the middle of October around soon-to-be Saint John Henry Newman. So get excited, sit back, and enjoy the first half of this talk from Bishop Barron on the grammar of assent. Welcome to this third lecture on John Henry Newman. We covered the first time um, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua to give us an overview of Newman's life and times and thought. Then last week we looked at the uh, very influential essay on the development of doctrine. Probably that's the one of Newman's texts that had the biggest impact at Vatican II. The text for tonight is Newman's most important, and that's by his own admission. And I think even the most um, um, 
you know, objective look at Newman will tell you that's the case, that this is the text that is the most um, significant. And it's the, uh, they give it its full title, an essay in aid of a grammar of ascent, usually just called the grammar of ascent. Newman's text from about 1870. Now, just to give you a little orientation to it, I'm going to read to you briefly from the Biglietto speech. You know, the famous speech Newman gave in 1879 when he's made a cardinal, and upon reception of the official notification, he gave a speech. And uh, it'll be the best sort of introduction to uh, this text. Here's what he said. This is Newman, end of his life. Well, he's age 78. He lived to be about 90, so he had a few years left in him, but uh, toward the end of his life. He says, I rejoice to say... To one great mischief I have from the first opposed myself. For 30, 40, 50 years, I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. So he announces that that's his great battle all his life. Now, one of the great ironies is by the early 20th century, Newman is seen as a champion of liberalism. It's a very interesting development. That's a whole other story. But here he is himself saying that's the mischief he fought against. And this... Never did Holy Church need champions against it more sorely than now, when, alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare of the whole earth. It's a pretty dire assessment of the, of the danger of liberalism. Now, what does he mean by it? Helpfully, he tells us exactly what he means by it in this speech. Now, go back. Those who are here for the first lecture, go right back to the um, Oxford movement when he laid out the three great principles. The first one was the principle of doctrine. It's exactly what he's saying here now, many years later. Listen, liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. And this is the teaching which is gaining substance and force daily. It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. See, that's what's bugging Newman. That's what he calls liberalism. Think of someone like Schleiermacher, you know, the founder of, of liberal Protestantism, who says religion is correlated to the feeling of absolute dependency. It comes out of our uh, subjective consciousness. That's what he's against. How contemporary this sounds, by the way. It teaches that all are to be tolerated for all their matters of opinion. Reveal religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste. See, that's what he's against. That sort of Schleiermacherian, subjective um, source of religion. That's what he calls liberalism. Now, here's a correlate of it, which comes up in the Grammar of Sin, and I want to bring the two of them together to give the full um, sense of it. The second basic tenet of liberalism, Newman says, is, quote, that demonstration or formal logic is the only basis for any certitude. That demonstration or formal logic is the only basis for any certitude. Bring the two together, we see why religion was rejected as something true, because you can't demonstrate it. You can't uh, uh, construct a logical syllogism to prove it. And therefore what, what's the conclusion? Well, if it exists, it must be a subjective hobby. It must be something that certain people like to have. It's like collecting stamps, but it's not something which is true. See, Newman's claim now, and it's the central argument of the grammar of ascent, is we can have certitude in matters apart from clear, rational demonstration. He's going to resist, and it's, we'll see it's John Locke's view. He's going to resist the view that ascent is reducible to the power of inference. Does that make some sense? That's the central argument now of the grammar of ascent. And it's part of his battle against liberalism in matters of religion, as he says in the Biglietto speech. 
and this will, I hope, become clear as I go through uh, his argument. Um, as I mentioned, in many ways, this is the crowning glory, the culmination of Newman's career. Go way back now to his 20s when he's writing those um, university sermons. Many of them are on faith and reason, and that's Newman's master concern all his life. Why do we assent to religious... See, what's the rapport between faith and reason? He's trying to work on that all his life. This book, at the end of his life, is his culminating uh, treatment. Here's something very instructive from a letter and a journal entry from 1870, just as the book is coming out. He reflects on the genesis of the grammar of assent. Here's what he says to an old friend. I've done five constructive works in my life, and this is the hardest. It's telling, isn't it? It's a very hard text. It is. It's a very abstruse, complex text, and Newman himself knew that. But here are the five that he names. My prophetical office, which has come to pieces, that was the via media. Remember back in his Anglican days, when he said, we Anglicans are the via media between Protestantism and Catholicism. So he says at the end of his life, that's a wash. That book is no good. It's come to pieces. Then he names my essay on justification, which stands pretty well, he said. If you want to get a really good Catholic reading of that problem that comes up out of Luther and the Reformers, that's a great text. I tell my students at Mundelein all the time to read it. Many have written papers on it. Go get it. Newman on justification. He himself said this is a darn good text, and I think he's right. Um, and then he says three Catholic texts, because that was written when he was still an Anglican, by the way, this thing on justification. Three Catholic. Development of doctrine, we looked at last week. University education, that's the idea of a university I didn't have time to look at. And the last, which I'm calling an essay in aid of a grammar of ascent. So he notices this now as the fifth of his really great uh, works. In a journal entry of October 30th, Newman admits that he had 19 separate beginnings of this work. <laughs> you know that moment when you all know that when you're writing something, you like, throw it away, you know. 19 separate beginnings of this work before he found the way forward. The breakthrough occurred in the summer of 1866. So he was 65. He's vacationing in Lake Geneva, not Wisconsin, but Switzerland. Um, and here's what struck him, and it's very interesting, I think. And it shows, I always call Newman a proto-postmodern. Many of the postmodern themes are anticipated in him. Here's one of them. He said, it occurred to me I shouldn't start with certitude. I should start with assent. It's a very interesting difference, isn't it? Modern philosophy from Descartes on is obsessed with certitude. How are we sure of things? How are we certain of things? So the cogito on, that's the obsession of modern thought. It dawns on Newman now, that's the wrong place to start. Rather, we should start with assent. What makes us say, yes, that's true? And see, his whole point is, it's hardly ever because I have epidictic, argumentative certitude about it. That's what Descartes wanted. Doubt everything that can be doubted until you find absolute certainty. Newman's saying you hardly ever get that in life. And in fact, here's the central argument. In fact, we frequently assent unconditionally, even in the absence of absolutely clinching argumentation. Here's a line from David Burrell, who helped me a lot. David Burrell was a student of Lonergan. Lonergan was deeply influenced by Newman. I mentioned last time that before Lonergan wrote Insight, he said he read the Grammar of Ascent 20 times. So <laughs> on your 20th reading of it, things will occur to you. Um, but here's something Burrell said to me. There's a huge distinction between 
the need to be certain, and the quest to understand. The first is neurotic. The second is deeply human. And I think that's dead right. I pass it on whenever I can. I pass it on to you. I think Cartesianism is a kind of neurosis, the need to be certain. Because the trouble is, we hardly ever in life have that kind of certitude. We just don't. Okay, I'll grant you the cogito, even though Bertrand Russell <laughs> denied the cogito. I mean, what we have apodictically in our minds is so rare. But the quest to understand, that's a whole different game. And see, Newman's after that. Why do we assent to things? See, and it's rarely a question of Cartesian epidicticism. Okay, that's what he's trying to pursue now in this text. You know, here's something else. Um, I think I mentioned this last time. Newman is an Englishman. And of course, all of us in this room who speak the English language are influenced by the English frame of mind. What's the British frame of mind? It's much more empirical, isn't it? It's much more commonsensical, down to earth. Continentals like Hegel and Descartes and, and Spinoza and Leibniz are always flying off into grand abstractions. British people like Roger Bacon and Francis Bacon and John Locke and David Hume and John Henry Newman are uneasy with that. Do you remember as you read in your careers the uh, Heidegger's Introduction to Metaphysics? It's a dreadful little text because uh, I don't like Heidegger, you know, because he says in that text, we, of course, we Americans are hopeless, hopeless pragmatists. We have no mind for philosophy at all, says Heidegger. The British are right behind us. They're caught up in all their empirical carrying on. The Russians are barbarians. And we Germans, he says, are the most metaphysical of people. We are inheritors of the Greeks. Well, you know what? I take John Henry Newman or William James any day of the week and twice on Saturday over a creepy little Nazi like Heidegger. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I, I, I really... I really mean that is that there is something creepy about that and, and this sort of conceit of you know, we're the most metaphysical. I like the pragmatism of Newman. Um, William James, too, is a kind of philosophical hero of mine, and there's a lot of contact between James and Newman, not explicitly, but you can see a lot of common themes in the two of them. This, this text of Newman's now is where he lays out, <laughs> avant la lettre, a sort of anti-Heideggerian approach, I think. Okay, end of editorializing about Heidegger, but um, give me a break. We're the most metaphysical of people. Um, okay, let me start now with the very first part of the text. It's, it's a dense part of the text. I always warn people when you start the grammar of ascent, you get bogged down really easily because he starts with a lot of technical stuff about modes of apprehension of propositions. I'm not going to draw you through all that. I'm going to draw you right to what I think is the heart of it, and it's a very important uh, distinction. He distinguishes between what he calls notional assent and real assent. Now, can I say right off the bat, I think this is very important for preachers and for evangelists, this distinction. Now, what is it? It's really, it's a very simple distinction, but the way he um, amplifies it is interesting. He says, um, notional apprehension, notional assent has to do with abstractions, has to do with universals. So I say man is an animal. I'm apprehending that in a notional way. Real apprehension and real assent has to do with particulars. So Philip was the father of Alexander. I assent to that in a real way, not just a notional way. Real apprehension is an experience or information about the concrete. Now here's the British side of Newman very strongly. It can concern propositions about what's immediately in front of us. So I can say, well, here you all are in this room. I'm assenting to that really. Or it could be something in my imagination. 
He says, for example, the sound of a deste fidelis. And whenever I read that, I think of all the times as a priest I've walked up the aisle of the church on, on Christmas Day to the Adeste Fidelis. As that's in my mind, I'm assenting to it. I'm apprehending it in a real way, not just a notional way. Now, as we saw last week, the human mind is never satisfied simply with a, a, a straightforward apprehension. What does it do? It analyzes, judges, compares, contrasts, turns around, all that process. So it moves rather easily from the real to the notional. And Newman doesn't have a thing against notional assent. That's an appropriate move of the mind. So he says we move from men to man, from dogs and cats and fish to animal, from particular instances of injustice to injustice, going from real to notional. Each type has its strength and its weakness. Quote, to apprehend notionally is to have breadth of mind, but to be shallow. To apprehend really is to be deep, but to be narrow-minded. So each has its strength and weakness. The two types of apprehension, of course, exist in the same mind, and we go back and forth between them, and that's fine. But here's the major difference, and this is why I talk about evangelization and preaching. Newman says... Real assent is what moves people to action. That's the difference. Both are important, both are necessary. But real assent moves people to action in a way that notional assent does not. Let me give you some more examples of this, because they're, they're, I'm skipping a lot, but it's interesting when he gets into the uh, examples. He says, a school kid might have performed poorly, poorly in class at the manipulation of notions. So he's bad at philosophy or he's bad at these more intuitional moves. But that same student might excel at the arts or the sciences, showing his proficiency with real assent over notional assent. He said the pragmatic people tend to be the reformers and inventors in various departments of thought. That's interesting, isn't it? Those who reform and invent are the more real assent people. Secondly, he says, a principle or a notion, an abstraction, can float on the surface of life until somebody has the imagination to make it real and hence practically compelling. His example is, is good, I think. He says, think of the arguments against slavery that were out there in the, in the uh, minds of, of people in Europe and America. But it took certain geniuses like Harriet Beecher Stowe, right, uh, to um, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which seizes the imagination of people and makes slavery not just a notional issue, but a real issue. People now really apprehend uh, the danger of slavery. Think of um, Lincoln's line when she came to the White House. Well, you're the little lady who, who wrote the book that started this great war. It wasn't until that book came out that the nation was kind of stirred to activity. That's Newman's idea of the notional floating on the surface until someone can bring it down through real ascent. He says, the verses of great classical poets can be memorized in one's youth and remain notional but they take on power with the passing of years, and now they become real. Do you ever have that experience? You, you memorize a poem you know, from years ago, and it's just words or just abstractions. But then as you get older, and you move into what that poet was saying, and now you've got real experience of it, that poem now comes down into your body, 
and begins to change you. Newman says that's the purpose of meditation in regard to scripture, by the way, is to move the scripture from the notional to the real. See, when you meditate, think of the whole Ignatian approach, right, is to make it sensually real, is to bring it to the, uh, the more powerful level. Now, again, he makes some clarifications. Real apprehension, real ascent in all its vividness can sometimes lead to the erroneous conclusion that one is in possession of the truth. The vividness of the image is no guarantee of its truth. The mind has to move up to the higher level of notional ascent. Secondly, there's something individualistic about real ascent, and that's true, isn't it? If like, I've got my sensations about an idea, about an a, 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 a image, the way it affects me and my body, well, that's very particular to me. A great thing about notional ascent is it links us together. That's the great thing about abstractions. We can all move into them together. Where there is something individualistic about real ascent, that's the danger with it. Here's the way he lines up the basic contrast. This is a good sort of summary. Persons influence us. Voices melt us. Looks subdue us. Deeds inflame us. Many a man will live and die upon a dogma. No man will be a martyr for a conclusion. I see what he's driving at there is a conclusion is simply the, what's derived from a notional syllogistic uh, argument. You know, people don't die for those. They die for something that's really uh, apprehended. Again, quote, the heart. Now remember Newman's uh, Episcopal motto, cor ad cor loquitur, right? Heart speaks to heart. And he's a Pascalian here. It's, this is not Oprah emotionalism when he says heart. He means something that's deeper than reason or beyond reason. The heart is commonly reached not through reason, but through the imagination, by means of direct impressions, by the testimony of facts and events, by history, by description. He's right about this, it seems to me. If you want to reach people's hearts, you've got to appeal that way to them. Right? Now again, he's not against notional uh, apprehension or notional ascent. We need it. But if you want to move people's hearts and move them to action, it's the real that matters more than the notional. Now, you know what always strikes me here? is One of the glories of the English language Shakespeare really knew, all the great masters knew this, is that we have two strands within English, right? There's the more Germanic Saxon strand and the more Latinate French strand that came in through the Norman invasion, right? Which one is more real? Yeah, Saxon English is more real, it's more earthy. Um, you know, and it's very deep, even though we're far removed from 1066, but it's just in our, our unconscious, isn't it, uh, ethnically and linguistically. Um, the very fact that there's that animal out in the field, that, the muddy animal with the four legs and the little snout, and, and it's a pig, right? There's an Anglo-Saxon word for it, pig. But the French word for it is porc, right? But if you're in France, that's what you're saying. C'est ton porc. It's just that, that muddy little critter out there. But of course, where does pork appear? But on the plate, that's pork. It's not out there in the field. That's where the muddy Anglo-Saxons were out in the field. But we French are having pork on the plate. Same with beef, right? C'est un boeuf. In French, this means it's a cow out there. But a cow or cattle, that's Anglo-Saxon. But boeuf, beef, is on the plate. Uh, mutton, the same thing. Right? There's a sheep out there. But it's mouton on the plate. So the French tends to be more elevated, 
And, and again, there's no particular reason for that. I'm just saying it's in our cultural association, it's our cultural history, that we associate Frenchy-type terms, Latinate terms, with higher, more notional ascent. Right? Words ending in I-O-N, all those that kind of abstract words come up through the French uh, thing. You know, I think of here is uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's wife, right, was Jacqueline Bouvier. Now you say Jacqueline Bouvier to most Americans. Jacqueline Bouvier. It's très élégant. It's very sophisticated, right? Well, Bouvier is related to Bouff. A Bouvier was a cattle a herder. Some that took care of the Bouff. The you know, so her name was was Jackie um, uh, Herdsman or Jackie Cowherder. Right? That's what it means. But somehow, you know, with our you know, Bouvier, it's very sophisticated. Um, that's a wall, right? But it's a mur in French. So yeah, a mural is a very sophisticated painting on a wall. But that's all that is, is a mur. <laughs> My point is, we have both these in English. Part of the glory of English, we can use both of them very effectively. We can use the Latinate words, the Frenchy words, when we want to communicate more notional uh, ascent. But you want to move people to action, what do you use? Now, you know who knew this, of course, was Churchill, right? Churchill knew this in his bones. If you want to move people to action. So what did he tell the English in the time of the Blitz, you know, when the Nazis are threatening? And what, what did he tell them? You know, we will fight on the beaches, we'll fight on the streets, and we'll fight on the hillside. And all I've got to offer you is blood, toil, tears, and sweat. See, very, now he was, a, he was a, a guy that knew how to use language. There's not one Latinate word in that group. It's all tough, pointed Anglo-Saxon words. They tend to hit us more at the heart level, you know. You know, another good Churchill example is um, same time period, he came to Canada to ask for money and armaments from the Canadian Parliament. You know what his speech was? It's the one where, you know that famous picture of Churchill where he's kind of glowering in the camera? That was taken just after that speech or just before the speech. He, there's the Canadian Parliament. It's this climactic moment of English history and he's trying to get money out of them. Here's the whole speech he gave. He said, They said they would wring our neck like a chicken. Some chicken. Some neck. And that was the whole speech. <laughs> and he got everything he wanted. <laughs> he moved them to action, you know? There is real assent. And it's, I think, very important for preachers. Um, people are nodding off in class it's, or in your, in your church. It's probably because you're using an awful lot of Latinate kind of French uh, English. Is use earthy Anglo-Saxon English. Boom, if you want people to remember what you're saying. Uh, now, it's, I'm not driving a wedge between them. One's good, one's bad. But it's Newman's point is action. Action is more tied to Anglo-Saxon and to real ascent. Okay. Now, having made that point, here's what he asks. Can we have something like real ascent in regard to religion? It's obvious we can have notional ascent. Read any page of Thomas Aquinas. Read any page of Augustine. Whenever you argue for God's existence, you line up attributes of God, you philosophize about God, you're trading in notional assent. And again, he's all in favor of it. I'm, he's not against it, neither am I. But he says, if you want to really move people to action in the area of religion, you've got to appeal to real assent. Well, how do you do it if God is immaterial? It's <laughs> a major problem. How do, you, how do you get real assent in regard to God? Here's his very famous answer. Conscience. Conscience is the way toward real assent when it comes to God. Now, what's conscience? 
It's a kind of concrete access to the being of God. It's a sense of God as judge and ruler, which I get in an almost experiential way. Now let me try to um, pull out the implications here. He says, conscience is, quote, a certain keen sensibility. Notice the language, please, not an idea. It's a certain keen sensibility, like I'm having right now, a keen sensibility of all of you. Certain keen sensibility, pleasant or painful, attendant on certain of our actions, which in consequence we call right and wrong. A certain keen sensibility, in virtue of which I call certain actions right or wrong. Conscience is twofold, he says. It's a moral sense, first, and secondly, a sense of duty. It means conscience both reveals to us what is right and wrong, and secondly, it sanctions or rewards us for the performance of moral acts. It does both those things. Conscience continually forces on us, he says, by, quote, threats and promises that we must follow the right and avoid the wrong. Just as we have a sense of the beautiful, think of someone with a very keen aesthetic sense. They know when something sounds right or looks right. So we have a very keen moral sense, but with an important distinction. Unlike the aesthetic taste, conscience seems oriented to something higher than the self, which is why we refer to it, he says, as a voice. The voice, now notice real ascent we're talking about. The voice of my conscience told me. I would never say the voice of my aesthetic sensibility. I might say, I've got this aesthetic sense and I made a good judgment or bad judgment, but I don't feel ashamed by that judgment, do I? I might feel embarrassed by it if I make a bad judgment in front of an expert, but I'm not ashamed by it. But conscience is a voice. And I am indeed ashamed when I don't follow that voice. Newman says that inanimate things cannot stir our affections. I'm not ashamed in front of the chair. I can't be. I can't be ashamed in front of the room. I can only be ashamed in front of a person. And he finds that fascinating. Now, again, we can look at all our post-Freudian things, but I mean, I think the stay with Newman here is, is very rich. I'm only ashamed or delighted that way in front of a person. Conscience tells me there is one, there's someone before whom I am responsible, who makes a claim on me. Quote, if I'm doing wrong, we feel the same tearful, broken-hearted sorrow which overwhelms us on hurting a mother. If I'm doing right, we enjoy the same sunny serenity of mind, the same soothing, satisfactory delight which follows on our receiving praise from a father. We certainly have within us the image of some person to whom we look and to whom veneration is due. Isn't that great? See, that's, that's real ascent in matters of religion. Comes from the sense of conscience that gives me that either burning sense of shame or that sense of delight at having pleased someone. Notice something, too, as I was reading that to you. Uh, this is a literary master, isn't he? So um, 
I feel brokenhearted sorrow, which overwhelms me on hurting a mother. But now listen, if we enjoy the same sunny serenity of mind, the same soothing, satisfactory delight, he's calming, calming you down, the language itself. And Newman, he's like Augustine that way, is always using alliteration, always using rhetorical devices. That's a good example of it. Um, now, what follows if we examine this further? Such feelings can only be evoked, Newman says, by an intelligent being. Again, I can't be ashamed in front of something that's not intelligent. I can't be delighted that same way in front of something unintelligent. In front of a dog, I don't feel shame or I don't feel delight. Oh, the dog is pleased with me. The dog must be very happy. I mean, I'd never feel that. You must be in the presence of an intelligent reality if you have such feelings. Secondly, it must be an intelligent being capable of looking into your own depths. Because that's where conscience uh, is at play, isn't it? It's not so much an external, it's inside of me. It's inside my interiority. Because I can feel ashamed even at a thought, right? A thought of doing something wicked. I can feel ashamed. That means this being in whose presence I stand must be not only intelligent, but must be so rangy in his intelligence as to reach into my own interiority. You see, real ascent again, real uh, apprehension of God. His conclusion is, it's only logical to say the ground of conscience, the condition for the possibility of conscience, the reason we call it a voice, is that it has to do with the supernatural intelligent being that we call God. Well, we hope you enjoyed the first half of Bishop Barron's talk on the grammar of ascent. Be sure to tune back next week to catch the second half of it. Also, a couple recommendations. If you want to read some of John Henry Newman's works, I strongly recommend his book, Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine. It's one that we've published here at Word on Fire through our Word on Fire Classics line of books. It's a beautiful hardcover edition with a ribbon bookmark and an introduction by Bishop Barron himself. You can pick up your copy at wordonfireshow.com slash Newman. Also, if you don't know much about Newman, now would be a great time to familiarize yourself as we're nearing his canonization. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to watch the episode from our Pivotal Players film series dedicated to John Henry Newman. You'll find that at our Word on Fire digital platform, or when you join the Word on Fire Institute, you get free access to that episode and all the other films we've produced. So get the book, Essay in the Development of Christian Doctrine, watch the Newman episode, and you'll be well prepared here for the canonization. Well, thanks so much, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.